Well, we're in week two of our series in Ezra and Nehemiah, and uh, before we begin, I want to deal with a couple of questions that uh, you may have thought, Um, and if you haven't thought these questions, you certainly will now. Question number one, why do I call it Ezra and Nehemiah? Shouldn't I say Ezra and Nehemiah because it's two books in the Bible? Well, Ezra and Nehemiah were originally one book. And it was simply called Ezra. And, uh, but they've been you know, divided up into two books for hundreds of years, literally many hundreds of years. And so I call them Ezra and Nehemiah because this two-volume work tells one story. Question number two. Last week, it was week one of my sermon on Ezra in this series on Ezra and Nehemiah. And yet no verses from Ezra and Nehemiah were actually read. How can you start a sermon series on Ezra and Nehemiah without preaching from Ezra and Nehemiah? Well, Ezra and Nehemiah tells the story of the return of God's people from captivity. To return from captivity requires a captivity. And last week was all about how God's people became captives back then, as well as how you and I might become captives today. And so uh, today we'll sort of get into Ezra and Nehemiah in earnest, and it brings up this question. Question number three, are we going to read from Ezra and Nehemiah today? And the answer is, oh yeah. (laughs) Be careful what you ask for. We're going to read from Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, of course, in this story, in uh, the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, well, today begins the return from exile, okay? And so, if you wanted me to read from Ezra and Nehemiah last week, uh, well, you certainly would get your wish today, because today we're going to read the first two chapters of Ezra, before I be, actually, before I begin the message in earnest. And, uh, and undoubtedly, we're going to come across a, a number of verses where you will think this question, why is he reading that? Can't we skip this part? And the answer is no. We will not skip in the reading of God's Word. Because all Scripture is inspired by God. Not just the easy to understand parts. Not just the verses you can maybe take out of context and make apply to your life in any way that you wish. But all Scripture is inspired by God, and all Scripture is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. And by the end of this series, we will have read all of Ezra, Nehemiah, because my task, one of my tasks that God has given me, is to feed the whole counsel of God to the flock of God. Now, the reading of the whole counsel of God by the congregation is such an important part and such an important practice that not only do we find church history replete with examples of it, but it's also a practice found in both the Old and the New Testament. The people of God read God's Word together. Now, I'm sure that there are flocks of sheep whose under-shepherds feed them nothing more than cotton candy. And I'm sure those sheep love it. However, a flock that eats nothing but sugar will certainly be easy pickings for the wolf outside the door. 
And so you might look at the liver and onions served before you today and say, really, this for dinner? And my reply to you will be, you will eat it and you will like it. (laughs) And if you're like my children, you will say, I'll eat it, but I won't like it. (laughs) Which is fine, you don't have to like it as long as you eat it. So in a minute, we're going to read Ezra 1 and 2, but I'll I'll give you this. Take solace in this. Once I begin the sermon in earnest, once I begin the exposition of God's Word, this is where I will exercise some of my pastoral latitude. In other words, we'll focus our attention on principles from the text that we read today that I believe the Spirit of God would have impress upon us today. And so now if you have access to a Bible, I would invite you to get it out and to read silently along with me, Ezra 1 and 2. The verses will appear on the screen behind me, and as they do, pray for Renee as she tries to keep up with all of the clicking. Some of these verses, uh, well, let's just put it this way. There's about 81 verses uh, that we're going to read, and and, uh, here we go. In the first year of the king, Cyrus of Persia, In order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah, the Lord roused the spirit of King Cyrus to issue a proclamation throughout his entire kingdom and to put it in writing. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of the heavens, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a house at Jerusalem and Judah. If any of his people among you, excuse me, any of his people among you may... His God be with him, and may he go to Jerusalem and Judah and build the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. Let every survivor, wherever he resides, be assisted by the men of that region with silver, gold, goods, livestock, along with a freewill offering for the house of God in Jerusalem. So the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, along with priests and Levites, everyone whose spirit God had roused, prepared to go up and rebuild the Lord's house in Jerusalem. All their neighbors supported them with silver articles, gold, goods, livestock, and valuables, in addition to all that was given as a freewill offering. King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and had placed in the house of his gods. King Cyrus of Persia had them brought out under the supervision of Mithredath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah, this was the inventory. Thirty gold basins, a thousand silver basins, twenty-nine silver knives, thirty gold bowls, four hundred ten silver bowls, and a thousand other articles. The gold and silver articles totaled five thousand four hundred. Sheshbazar brought all of them when the exiles went up from Babylon to Jerusalem. Chapter 2. These now are the people of the province who came from those captive exiles King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had deported to, uh, to Babylon. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reeliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Banah. The number of the Israelite men included... Parash's descendants, 2,172. Shephatiah's descendants, 372. Era's descendants, 775. Pahath Moab's descendants, Jeshua's and Joab's descendants, 2,812. 
Elam's descendants, 1,254. Zatu's descendants, 945. Zechai's descendants, 760. Bani's descendants, 642. Bebai's descendants, 623. Asgad's descendants, 1,222. Adenakam's descendants, 666. Bigvi's descendants, 2,056. Adin's descendants, 454. Ater's descendants of Hezekiah, 98. Bazai's descendants, 323. Jorah's descendants, 112. Hashem's descendants, 223. Gibar's descendants, 95. Bethlehem's people, 123. Netophah's men, 56. Anathoth's men, 128. Asmaveth's people, 42. Koreatharim's, Shepharah's, and Beroth's people, 743. Ramaz and Geba's people, 621. Mikmah's men, 122. Bethel and Ai's men, 223. Nebo's people, 52. Magbish's people, 156. The other Elam's people, 1,254. Harim's people, 320. Lodes, Hadids, and Ono's people, 725. Jericho's people, 345. Sana's people, 3,630. The priests, of, the priests included Jediah's descendants of the house of Jeshua, 973. Emir's descendants, 1,052. Pashur's descendants, 1,247. And Harim's descendants, 1,017. Verse 40. The Levites included Jeshua's and Cadmiel's descendants from Hodaviah's descendants, 74. The singers included Asaph's descendants, 128. Verse 42. The gatekeeper's descendants included Shalom's descendants, Ater's descendants, Talmud's descendants, Akub's descendants, Hatita's descendants, Shobai's descendants, and all 139. Verse 43. The temple servants included... Ziha's descendants, Hasufa's descendants, Tabath's descendants, Keros's descendants, Saiah's descendants, Padon's descendants, Lebanon's descendants, Hagabah's descendants, Akub's descendants, Hagab's descendants, Shammai's descendants, Hanan's descendants, Gedel's descendants, Gahar's descendants, Raiah's descendants, Rezin's descendants, Nakoda's descendants, Gizam's descendants, Uz's descendants, Pasea's descendants, Besai's descendants, Asna's descendants, Meunim's descendants, Mephusim's descendants, Bakbuk's descendants, Hakufa's descendants, Harhar's descendants, Basilus' descendants, Mahida's descendants, Harsha's descendants, Barkos' descendants, Sisera's descendants, Tema's descendants, Naziah's descendants, and Hatifa's descendants. Verse 55. The descendants of Solomon's servants included Sotai's descendants, Hasaphoreth's descendants, Peruda's descendants, Jalala's descendants, Darkon's descendants, Gedel's descendants, Shephatiah's descendants, Hatil's descendants, Pokereth, Hazabaim's descendants, and Ami's descendants, all the temple servants and descendants of Solomon's servants, 392. Verse 59, the following are those who came from Tamah, Taharsha, Cherub, Adan, and Emir, but were unable to prove that their ancestral families and their lineage were Israelite. Deliah's descendants, Tobiah's descendants, Nakoda's descendants, 652, and from the descendants of the priests, the descendants of Hobiah, the descendants of Hakaz, the descendants of Barzillai, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Barzillai, the Gideonite, and who bore their name. These searched for their entries in the genealogical records, but they could not be found, so they were disqualified from the priesthood. 
The governor ordered them not to eat the most holy things until there was a priest who could consult the Urim and Thummim. The whole combined and assembly numbered 4,360, not including their 7,337 male and female servants and their 200 male and female singers. They had 736 horses, 245 mules, 435 camels, and 6,720 donkeys. Verse 68. After they arrived at the Lord's house in Jerusalem, some of the family heads gave freewill offerings for the house of God in order to have it rebuilt on its original site, based on what they could give. They gave 61,000 gold coins, 6,250 pounds of silver, and 1,000 priestly garments to the treasury for the project. The priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, temple servants, and some of the, town, some of the people settled in their towns, and the rest of Israel settled in their towns. Feel like I just read Dr. Seuss's Fox and Socks. <laughs> now is your tongue numb? Can I mention Dr. Seuss? Is that okay anymore? I, I'm not sure. If you're triggered, I'd like to apologize to nobody. So, okay. Um, it's a challenging thing to read. And us removed over two millennia, way over two millennia later, we look at this and we say, really? Why do we need to know all that? Listen, one of the keys, even if you don't know all the details, even if you don't know all the names, and I don't know all the names and the details of every person's story with God and with God's people, but I will say this. There are people who say that the Word of God is just a myth. No myth reads like that. That is the work of a historian who's being very accurate and very precise. That is like reading the Yellow Pages. That is like reading the census today. Okay? It may not be the most engaging reading in the world, but it's an accurate record of the reality and the reality at the time was that God's people were coming back to the land that God had promised. Now, let me give you a little bit of, a, of an oversight. Uh, not an oversight, an overview. <laughs> and oversight would be what I just said. That would be an oversight. An overview of the history, the background of what had happened to God's people. And so pay attention to the screens behind me. On this first screen that you see, it's a timeline, and you'll see the words United Kingdom. This indicates that at one time, God's people were united into one geopolitical kingdom, and they had a human king named Saul, and followed by another one named David, and followed by his son named Solomon, very famous kings. We, we know many of their stories. And after Solomon died, there was a split in the kingdom. The south seceded. Sound familiar? The south seceded, and so now there are two kingdoms. There was the kingdom of Israel up north that consisted of ten tribes, and the south was the kingdom of Judah that consisted of two tribes. And so we had this divided kingdom, and each of the kingdoms had many, many kings, as you can see indicated on that timeline. Some of the kings were very good, very faithful to God, and other kings were very bad and very unfaithful to God. And so this timeline went on. Let's move to the next slide. And it went on for quite a long time until finally God raised up an empire 
named Assyria. And Assyria came in and conquered the land and took captive the people in the northern kingdom. And that kingdom ceased to exist in 722 B.C. Now, to give you an idea of the size of Assyria's kingdom, let's move to the next slide. You'll see a map here. And you'll see that the size of their kingdom included everything from modern-day Iraq to Syria to Lebanon to Israel all the way down to into Egypt and, and parts of Turkey. This was a big kingdom. I mean, they really had it going on. And so these were the people that captured the northern town folk, the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, and made them all go live in modern-day um, Iraq and in that area. So Assyria came along. Let's move to the next slide and back to the timeline. Well, one of the lessons from history is that no kingdom and no empire if it's human, lasts forever. And so the time of Assyria came to an end, and God raised up another king in Babylon. And it was Nebuchadnezzar. And this kingdom defeated the Assyrians. And when they defeated the Assyrians, they began to make their claim to everything that Assyria had. And so that's what happens when you defeat your enemy. You get all the spoils of war, including their captives. And so they... Babylon took captive all the people of the northern kingdom, and that wasn't good enough for them, so they wanted to go ahead and take captive the land that they really already sort of controlled, but they took captive the people of the southern kingdom, Judah. They did this in three waves, the final wave occurring in about 586 B.C., and at that point, the kingdom of Judah was no more. They took all of those people captive, okay? And so, um, to give you an idea of the size of Babylon's kingdom, let's look at the next map. This is Babylon's kingdom, pretty much the same as Assyria's kingdom. And, uh, and so this was Babylon. Let's move on to the next slide, and it's a, another part of the timeline. In this part of the timeline, you'll see another name. It's Persia. Persia came along, and like I said before, no kingdom and no human uh, empire lasts forever. God raised up a guy by the name of Cyrus in Persia, and he conquered Babylon. What happens when you conquer another, conquer another nation? You got all the spoils of war, including their captives. And so Cyrus captured all of Babylon. And to give you an idea of the size of Cyrus's kingdom, we have to zoom out a little bit. Let's go to that, that slide. Because Cyrus conquered parts of India, parts of China, all practically all of the Middle East, all of Turkey, all the way up to the important part of Egypt, and he went all the way, the, the kingdom eventually, under him and Xerxes, went all the way to Greece. And there's some movies made recently about the great battles between Greece and the Persians, you know, and so you can uh, check all that out because everything Hollywood puts out is accurate, right? So anyway, um, so, you know, Cyrus really had a huge impact, but what is he going to do with all of these captives, all of these Jews who now are sort of back into being one, one group again? What's he going to do? Now, I know that that's a lot of background information, and if you zoned out from the reading and you zoned out from the maps, now's the time to zone back in because I want to talk to you about what this has to do with you, Okay. Let's just get into it. Principle number one. 
God is in control of your life. God was in control of all that history. And God is in control of little old me and little old you. He's in, he's in control of our lives. Now, you might look at your life right now. And you might think, man, my life is messed up. No one's in control of my life, not even me. Everything's out of control. I lack direction. I don't seem to have a sense of purpose. There's nothing cohesive really tying my, my life together. But here's what you need to understand. There is an invisible hand in your life that gently moves you. He protects you. He guides you. He directs you on the path that you should go. This is the hand of God. Now sometimes, because we are spiritually blind to it, sometimes because we are ignorant spiritually to what is going on, we might disregard the hand of God and sort of just do our own thing. Or uh, there might be even times in our lives when we acknowledge the hand of God. We know the right way to go. We know the right choice to make. And yet, in our pain, in our hurt, we rebel and do the opposite. Listen, when you and I fail to submit to the invisible hand of God directing our lives, that's when we leave the safety of His protection. That's when we enter the dangerous territory of those who would harm us. And that's when we become prisoners, captives in a life completely foreign to peace and hope and love. If you live long enough, if you stray far enough, you know what I'm talking about, being captive in this life. And yet all the time, the invisible hand of God is not finished with you. He will oversee the events that enable you to return home. To return to a home that's brand new. Now you might say, how can you return to a home if it's brand new? Well... We'll talk about that in a little bit, but have you ever gone someplace brand new and you thought, this is home? It's like that. It's like that. Principle number two. God has initiated the journey to your new spiritual home. God's the one who started this journey that you're on. God is the one who stirs hearts. God is the one who initiates. We see this in the text, Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah. Do you see that? That years before, God spoke through his prophet Jeremiah and said, this is what's going to happen. Let's read what God said. Jeremiah 25 because, God says, because you have not obeyed my words, I am going to send for my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And I will bring him and others against this land. And these nations 
will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. God made a promise. God made a prediction. He gave a prophecy through Jeremiah. The invisible hand of God was setting things in order. It was God who made Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, powerful. It was God who stirred up Nebuchadnezzar's heart to conquer Judah and to take its inhabitants captive. And now, 70 years later, in Ezra 1.1, it is God who raised up Cyrus, king of Persia, to conquer Babylon. And it is God who stirred up Cyrus's heart to allow those same captives to return to the land that God had given them and to worship Yahweh, the Most High God. Back to Ezra 1.1, a different portion of it. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order to fulfill the words of the Lord, the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah, look, the Lord roused the spirit of King Cyrus to issue this proclamation for everyone to go home. It was the Lord working in the hearts. It was the invisible hand of God working behind the scenes. We're reminded in Proverbs 21, verse 1, a king's heart is like channeled water in the Lord's hand. He directs it wherever he wishes. And that, by the way, is why we pray for those in power. That is why we pray for our Supreme Court, for our president, for our leaders in Congress, here at the state, county, local area. We pray for them because, although we might disagree with them, it is the Lord who can direct their heart. It's like water being channeled by His hand. You see, God is unshakably sovereign. And God has in His toolbox access to everything. Everything is in God's toolbox. God will use Anything he wants to accomplish his glory. Even a king. This says Burger King, but that's okay. <laughs> Everything is in God's toolbox. Everything. Even the king. God will use whoever he will. To do whatever he wills, whenever he wills it, for the sake of his people and the sound of his glory. God will use every circumstance that you could ever think of to bring you back to him. And he will use circumstances that are beyond your wildest imagination to do the same. If you are a child of God, he will not allow rebellion to go unchecked forever he'll bring you back it's best for you come back on your own before things get difficult not only did god stir up the heart the heart of king cyrus but you know who else god stirred up the heart of he stirred up the heart of his own people 
Look again at Ezra chapter 1, verse 5. So the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, along with the priests and Levites, everyone whose spirit God had roused, prepared to go up and rebuild the Lord's house in Jerusalem. Listen, today, if you sense that you need to return to God, if you sense that today you need to start going to church again and return to God's people, it is because God has initiated your return to Him. It is because God has placed that desire, that stir, that rousing in your own heart. Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. You see, God has initiated your journey to your new spiritual home. He's calling you to return to Jesus. It's that simple. Are you missing peace in your life right now? I mean, is peace just absent? Peace is found in Jesus. Are you missing contentment in your life? Or is nothing ever enough? Are you missing contentment? Contentment is found in Jesus. Do you feel like you don't have a place that's truly home for you? Your home is with Jesus. Your home is with Jesus. Principle number three. God's invitation to come home requires a response from you. It requires a response from you. You know, if you respond positively to God, I'm not going to lie to you. There will be a cost. There is always a cost for obedience. There always is. When King Cyrus obeyed God by letting the Israelites return, it cost thousands of pieces of gold and silver. When Israel returned in order to rebuild the Lord's house, it cost them 61,000 gold coins. It cost them 6,250 pounds of silver. It cost them 100 priestly garments. And if you're going to return to God, you're free to come back. But coming back will not be free. There will be a cost. There is always a cost for obedience. Everyone who has followed the Lord Jesus Christ has given up something. You lay it down and you follow the Lord. Read about the Samaritan woman in John 4. We pass by this verse. But it says, she laid her water bucket down. And began to follow Jesus. Matthew gave up his very profitable tax collecting business and followed Jesus. If you follow Jesus, you're going to give up something. You're going to give up something. There's always a cost for obedience. In Luke 14, Jesus confronts a crowd with very unnerving words. Jesus said to this crowd, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, wanting to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, after he has laid the foundation and cannot finish it, 
all the onlookers will begin to ridicule him, saying, This man started to build, but wasn't able to finish. Or what king, going to war against another king, will not first sit down and decide if he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If not, while the other is still far off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. In the same way, therefore, every one of you who does not renounce all his possessions cannot be my disciple. Strong terms. But Jesus didn't hesitate when he said it. There's always a cost for obedience. Jesus instructs you to count the cost. And by the way, there's always a cost for disobedience too. And that cost is much, much more. You're going to pay one or the other. You don't want to pay the cost for disobedience. If God is stirring up your spirit, it is because he initiated it. And it is because he wants you to respond to him today. And it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how much or how little wealth you have, what ethnic background you've inherited or what you've done in the past. None of that matters. Because I want you to look at a list of the people who responded to God's call to return to their new home. And it's the very last verse we read. Ezra 2.70. The priests, Levites, singers... Gatekeepers, temple servants, and some of the people settled in their towns, and the rest of Israel settled in their towns. It doesn't matter who you are. There's a place for you to come be a part of God's family. God wants you to come to Him. So whoever you are, whatever your story, God has been busy creating a brand new spiritual home for you. He's inviting you to have it, to make it your own. It's a place you've never been. But once you enter, you'll know it's home for you. Will you come? God is calling you to come home.